0: Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah, and this is BioEats World, our show where we talk about all the ways biology is technology. We've talked a lot about brains on this show from the new technology of brain organoids, to how our brains process pain, to what happens when there's a disconnect between the brain and the body, like with a spinal cord injury. In this episode, we talk with Jeff Hawkins, an entrepreneur and scientist known for inventing some of the earliest handheld computers, the Palm and the Trio, who then turned his career to neuroscience and founded the Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience in 2002 and Numenta in 2005, about his new theory on how the brain creates intelligence. So what does intelligence mean here? We aren't talking about IQ or how smart you are. This episode is about understanding how the cells in our brain work to process and interpret information and sensory input, like sight, smell, touch, or language, or math, to create a perception of and to navigate through the world around us. A16Z general partner Vijay Pandey and I talked to Jeff about the basic principles in this new idea of the brain's learning methodology for creating not just human intelligence, but animal intelligence, artificial intelligence, even alien intelligence, which he lays out in his newly released book, A Thousand Brains, A New Theory of Intelligence. We discuss how the neocortex builds models of the world around us and how we use those models, and what it could mean for how we design the next generation of truly intelligent machines. This episode goes all the way from tiny neurons and how they speak to each other to what's happening in optical illusions in your brain to the future of humanity and beyond. We start with Jeff describing where the research about the brain behind this theory began.
1: We study the part of the brain called the neocortex, which is about 70% of the volume of the human brain. It's the big wrinkly thing that you see when you see a picture of a brain.
0: The cartoon part, basically.
1: Yeah. And uh, (laughs) it's about the size of a dinner napkin. It's like two and a half millimeters thick, and it's a big sheet of cells. Anything that we think about that the human intellect is doing, it's pretty much the neocortex. So we think about everything from our basic sensory perception of sight and hearing and touch and language, all sorts of language, mathematics. And there's this huge amount of data that's known about the neocortex, The anatomy, the physiology, the different cell types, how they're connected, all these in the chemistry, the gene expressions and so on, but no one really understands how the whole thing works. And so that's been our focus. It's like, what's going on here? And we've been working under a premise that was first proposed many years ago by a scientist named Vernon Mountcastle, and he noted that the different parts of the neocortex do different things. So the parts of division and hearing and touch and language and so on, they all look remarkably the same. And he proposed that really everything we do, all aspects of intelligence are somehow built on the same substrate. They're somehow the same.
0: What do you mean by that, that everything is built on the same?
1: Well, if you look in the neocortex, it's two and a half millimeters thick. And if you look in that, two-and-a-half millimeters thickness, you'll see a very complicated set of circuitry. And you see that same complex circuitry everywhere. So if I look at a part of visual cortex, it looks very similar to the part that's doing touch and audition and language and other things we don't even know what it's doing. And if you look across mammal species, you look in the cat and the rat and the monkey, they have the same architecture. So the theory that Mountcastle proposed is that the cortex got very large in humans by replicating the same element over and over and over again. And that's called the cortical column. And in a human, we'd have about 150,000 of those columns. And they're all sort of the same. It's hard to believe that language and reading Shakespeare is the same as touching something with your finger, but that's what it looks like. He proposed this in 1979. And so this has been this sort of overarching idea that there is some common algorithm underlying everything. So what we focus on is like, what is that processing element? So once you understand what one of those elements is doing, then you can say, well, that's what's going on everywhere. And then you start seeing the commonality between these different functions we do.
0: Can you walk us through that actually? So if they all look the same, the assumption is they're all processing slightly differently. Well, what
1: Malcastle said was they're different because they get different inputs, not because they're processing differently. What makes a vision column vision is it gets input from the retina. But if you took that same column and you got input from the, the skin, it would become a touch column. And if you get input from some other columns, it might become a language column. And they've done this experiment actually. Some scientists have taken like animals and they reroute rerouted the nerves into different parts of the cortex. And even humans, if you're born congenitally blind, the part of your cortex, which normally does vision, becomes something else. So there's a lot of evidence that suggests this, but what is that algorithm? What is that processing? What's going on in this complicated little thing?
0: So you started from that kind of underlying assumption and then where did your work begin? What was the kind of breakthrough?
1: Well, first of all, what the cortex does is it learns a model of the world. You don't just look out in the world and say, oh, there's a table. No, there's a model of tables in your head. And so the cortex learns this very complex model of the world and everything in it. And we had a key discovery just about five years ago, where we discovered that what's going on is that the brain models the world by using reference frames. You can think of it like an X, Y, Z coordinate, you know, Cartesian coordinate reference frame or latitude and longitude. You can think of it as a set of dimensions. Everything you know, all knowledge you have is put into the structure of reference frames so that it provides structure to it. So when I learn what an object is, say what my computer mouse is, I literally have a model in my brain of what the different features of the computer mouse are and where they are relative to each other. And this is placed in these reference frames. And by the way, when I say a reference frame, it's attached to the object. So I'm, I'm holding a cup in my hand right now. And my brain has like a reference frame attached to this cup. And as I move the cup around, the reference frames change them. The neurons are changing the reference frame to be with the cup.
0: But how do we get these reference frames to begin from?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. How can neurons do this, right? This seems crazy. Neurons are just cells. They're simple cells. How do they create this stuff?
0: Yeah, you say something at one point.
1: Many years ago, starting back in 1990, and then again later in 2000, they discovered these two types of cells there, these things called place cells and grid cells, which are very famous in neuroscience. And what place cells and grid cells do is they learn maps of environment. So they were discovered in rats. So for rats moving around in its environment, these cells basically learn a map of the environment. So the place cells become active when the rat is in a particular place and the grid cells act more like a reference frame. They're like they okay, take where the animal is not based on century, but sort of like a grid like form.
0: Right. That makes sense that we all have to have some equipment like that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so when I touch an object with my finger, in order to recognize the object through touch, I have to move my finger over the surface of the object, feel the edges and so on. That is a directly analogous to what's happening when a rat is moving in some area, in an environment or in a maze or something like that. And so what we realized is that evolution took this algorithm that was designed for knowing where we are in the world. Just like, where's my body? How do I get home? That kind of stuff, which is pretty fundamental to survival. And it repurposed that algorithm and assigned it to all of our senses. So there are thousands of these algorithms attached, there are thousands of columns attached to my skin, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands overall, vision two. But essentially all of your sensory patches, like every patch on your skin or the patches of your retina are like little rats moving around in the world, but they're looking at objects and they know where they are. So my finger knows where it is relative to the things it's touching. And my eye, the different parts of my eye know where they are relative to the things we're seeing.
0: So they're all doing the same thing, but in...
1: They're all basically moving around the world, sensing different things in the world, but knowing where those things are relative to it. Like, where's my eye relative to the coffee cup? Or where's my finger relative to the cup? And so we're basically learning maps of objects in the world in the same way we learn maps of the rat or we learn maps of our environment.
0: It's so interesting because it kind of makes you feel like all the different senses like, are not so different, really. That's right.
1: They're not. It turns out that when it comes to the brain, surprisingly... A cortical column in the neocortex doesn't know what its input represents. It's just getting some patterns in the world. It has no idea that the columns that were getting input from their eyes look the same as the columns getting input from the fingers and the ears, and so... They don't really know what they're representing. It's just a bunch of neurons.
0: (laughs) They're just doing their job, mapping out stuff. Yeah,
1: They're basically doing what we call a sensory motor inference or sensory
2: motor learning. But there must be some interplay because you could see something that you never touched, and then you could touch it and then recognize which one it is. Yes.
1: So the end result of all this is we build models of the world. And those models are independent, not only of where my sensor was when I touched it, but also what sensor was used to
2: create. Right. <laughs> Even some models can come without a sense, right? I mean, you could also imagine things that you've never seen or touched or... Well,
1: I could do that through language.
2: Oh, You could do it geometrically,
1: right? You could imagine a structure or something like that. Yeah. So one of the things we realize is that somehow this has to be underlying all high-level thought.
0: So it's like the foundation that It's the foundation.
1: Is. So we now understand that all knowledge of all types, whether you're talking about history or science or mathematics or art, anything you know, is stored in reference frames in the same way i store knowledge about a physical object of a cup like in the reference frame we store knowledge about history in reference range.
0: does that mean that even sort of very sophisticated new concepts that we're learning we're constantly mapping them against sort of old concepts
1: well i wouldn't say against old concepts but they're all being learned in the same way constantly this is the key discovery that we made, the user reference frame. We know that's the same mechanism that was used in the old part of the brain to know where we are in the world. And then we call this theory the 1,000 brains theory because literally when you learn something, you don't have one model of it. So 1,000 brains says basically that when your cortex isn't just one big model, it's tens of thousands of independent models. And so if I ask myself, well, where's knowledge stored about something like a coffee cup? Well, it's not in one place. It's in many places. There are models of the coffee cup that are visual models, like what it looks like, with the colors it has, and so on. It's shape. There are models that are tactile models, which might also include its shape, but also things like textures and how things move. There can even be auditory models, how it sounds when I play it on my table, and so on. And so these models, we have all these independent models, and the way they work is they all vote together. So it feels like you have one perception of the world. It doesn't feel like you're 10,000 models flying around in your head, because they all vote.
0: What do you mean by voting? The majority wins?
1: Well, in some sense, like, that, yes, it's sort of a democratic process. So if you look at the neocortex, so imagine you've got the sheet of cells, and it's divided into all these different regions, like there's visual regions and auditory regions and tactile regions and language regions. And then there's some connections which look like information flows in a hierarchy, both from A to B to C. But there's many other connections. Most of the connections go all over the place. They don't fit any kind of logical order. It <laughs> just go all over. And people didn't understand what those are. Like, what are these connections doing? You know, what can the primary visual cortex tell the primary auditory cortex? And what these connections are doing, they're voting. It's as if every little column is saying, I'm not sure what I'm seeing, or I'm not sure what I'm feeling. I'm not sure what I'm hearing. I have multiple possibilities. I'm going to let everyone know what possibilities I'm thinking about. And everyone does this simultaneously. And they all reach a consensus. Like, the only thing that's consistent with what we're all viewing right now is the following thing. It's a coffee cup, or it's a staple, or it's a flower.
0: So it's a kind of common denominator. Everybody says, okay, this is what we all agree on.
1: Yeah, it's a common denominator. It sounds like you're dumbing it down. It's actually a very powerful mechanism to say, (laughs) we're voting to figure out what's really going on in the world here, and we reach a consensus. Sometimes it feels like
2: the voting is going on, and the vote keeps on changing. Like an optical illusion, like you see the old woman or the young woman. Yeah, exactly. For me personally, I'm red, green, colorblind. But I'm pretty sure I can perceive red and green in my brain. I know fire trucks are red. They look like red. Grass looks like green. But if you give me an Excel graph where Excel's default choices are perfectly the red and green I can't see, actually, I will see the colors flip back and forth, much like you've seen an optical illusion go back and forth. And so I realized there must be some higher
1: order model that is telling my visual
2: cortex that fire trucks are red.
0: And the voting is changing. The vote changes. That's right.
1: Let's take it to an example that maybe even more people know, the vase and the faces. Yes, Mm yes. Right? You can see a vase or it can look like two faces facing each other. Essentially, the columns are all looking at these different parts of this image. And basically, the data is consistent with two different interpretations. But they can't hold two interpretations at once. It's a consensus. You know, something wins. So it's going kind to of pick one or the other. When you're seeing faces, those neurons are all, those connections, those voting neurons are all saying you're seeing two faces. And you can't perceive the VOD. It doesn't exist. But they get a little tired. And after a while, they say, you know what? <laughs> We've been doing that for a while. Is there another interpretation? Oh, yes, there's a VOD. And so they all flip at once. And so all the columns are now going to be saying, oh, I think it was a face. Now they're saying, well, that was consistent with my input. But now it's also consistent with the VOD. And so you go back and forth you're not able to hold these two hypotheses at once. The system wants to settle. And so it will settle, whether it's the old woman and the young woman or it's the vase and the faces.
0: I mean, it's incredible when you think, especially when you think about there's so much input, so much different input, but only one output is really, that's a really interesting way to think about it.
1: One of the other mysteries of the brain is like, your eyes are constantly moving like three times a second. And when they do, the entire input to the brain changes. But most of the time, you're completely unaware that your eyes are... That anything's changing. The world seems stable. Why is that? How is it possible that your eyes are changing? The input's completely changing. And for most of the time, you're completely unaware that it's happening. And this is a well-known problem. The answer goes back to this voting, right? Because the eyes are changing what they're looking at. All those columns are changing. So if I could look at the activity in the brain, I would see the locations and the features are constantly changing the things that are going on. But there's voting layers constant. The voting layer is stable. It says, Yeah, you're moving, all these things are changing. Now we only perceive the vote. We cannot consciously perceive what's going on underneath it. So the voting neurons are what allows the information to be put to other parts of the brain. So if I want to say what it is, I'm going to use the voting neurons.
0: So it's a giant filter. Yeah,
1: you can think of it as a filter. I can tell you what I'm seeing because those long range projections, the ones that are doing the voting, are passing information around in the brain. So that's the only information that's passed. The details underlie it are not passed. And so they're captured, they're stuck in different parts of the neocortex. You're not able to perceive them because they have no way of getting anywhere else. It
2: really begs interesting questions, obviously, for what to do on the AI and machine learning side. I mean, like you said that the classic picture of deep learning is a bit of an oversimplification, as beautiful as oversimplification it is. You know, you could go further. You could go into multitask learning and all these other tricks. I'm curious, sort of, what would be your prescription, given what we see about the brain, for what we should be, sort of, what direction we should be going in AI?
1: I'm a bit of an outlier here, in the sense that I've felt for my entire life, that we're only going to build truly intelligent machines when we understand what intelligence is. And then when you look at today's AI technologies, or even in the past, different AI technologies, they're nothing at all like a brain, nothing. It looks completely different. And so one could argue, well, it doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter how brains work, but i never felt that way. And I'm very confident that you do need to know how brains work. So now what are the features of a system has to have to be intelligent? And then how would we implement those features in the future? Today's AI or machine learning is very useful. It does many wonderful things, but it's not intelligent.
2: But it almost seems like you're training your dog, right? You know, you have a training set, you have rewards. Although
1: I would argue my dog is intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually
2: (laughs) curious to see where you'd put that. It sounds like you're really going towards generalized AI concepts, right?
1: Well, yeah. Today's AI is really like, it's not really what it's going to be in the future. You know, in the beginning of computers, when people first started building computers in the 1930s and 1940s, there were all kinds of screwy things. And it took a while from settling in on all computers are the same now and their general purpose. So we're in this early stage of AI right now. where in the latter part of the century. We're going to be building hugely intelligent machines. I'm pretty certain it is. And they're going to be all on a similar design, just like computers are all on a similar design today. So I was describing what these future AI machines are going to look like. There's a set of attributes.
0: This list of attributes comes from essentially the shift of your thousand brains theory.
1: It basically says what makes a brain intelligent? right? And if I know what makes a brain intelligent, then why wouldn't I need those things in an AI system, right? Mm -hmm.
2: And with the interesting idea that once you have the fundamental algorithm, you can hook in lots of different types of stimuli, and it will learn from that. Yes, right. And many more types of stimuli than a human being could have.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at nature, all mammals have a neocortex. And we have all different types of sensors. I mean, the three primary sensors for humans, vision, touch, and hearing. We have others. But other animals have, you know, echolocation. That goes through the neocortex electric fields, I mean, there's this general purpose learning algorithm, which is encapsulated in our brains in the cortical column, of which we have 100,000 of them, and they can be connected up to anything. And as long as they have a certain set of attributes, you can build machines of any shape, size, morphology, different types of sensors, radar, weirdo stuff, it doesn't really matter. It'll learn a model of the world using those sensors. So it's really a very basic idea that intelligence doesn't have to be tied to the way humans are, or our senses, or what we know. It's a learning methodology for building models of the world through sensory movement. And so I was trying to capture these four attributes. What are the primary things that I would say a minimum you have to have?
0: You say that the brain learns through movement and change. Is that what you mean by that?
1: To learn a model of the world, you have to move. You don't learn by just looking at pictures. You learn by picking things up, moving them, turning around, touching them, walking through space. You can't learn a model of your house without walking through your house, opening doors and opening cabinets and things like that. So this is just the way the brain works, the robotics and AI intelligence. It's really the same thing. We learn through movement, we're sensing and moving and knowing where your sensors are. The second is we learn continuously, unlike today's AI, which is not continuous learning. Today's AI, you go through a training phase, and then you deploy it where it doesn't learn anymore. But humans aren't like that. We are continually learning, it never stops. But we're constantly updating our model of the world. If you sit down at a dinner table and you look at where the food's on the dinner table, just looking at the object on the table, you build a model of where things are on the table, And then you close your eyes, you could say, where's the potatoes? You could point to it. A moment later, the things are moved, and you've updated your model until you would point to a different direction. So every moment of your waking life, you're updating your model. It's continuously learning. And that's an essential component of intelligence. The third thing is, as we've been talking about, intelligence is based not on a monolithic model, but on many models. You have to have many, many, many copies of this learning algorithm. Even something like vision requires many models. And touch requires many models. So you have to have this idea that we're building lots of these replications of this basic learning unit. And then the final thing is this use of reference frames that we talked about earlier to store knowledge. So information is not stored in just a list. It's not stored in just some weights. And And by the way, is a reference frame like a
2: linear algebra basis, or is it like a graph?
1: Uh, More like a graph, I would say. Uh, It's definitely more like a graph.
2: Yeah, that would make sense.
1: It's easiest to think of it as like dimensions in space. It's very close to that. So you can say like, oh, you know, I can move in this dimension, I can move this. And so I can locate something at some location, X, Y, and Z.
2: And that sounds like a linear algebra basis, where you have almost like a geometric, like X, Y, and Z, versus a graph, which is more about connectivity.
1: Well, they are connected, because movements are how you move from one point to the other. You can't randomly go around in these things. So you have to move through space, even thinking is a form of movement. So when I think about things, I have to move from a disconnected graph of points in this space. I can only move in certain dimensions, in certain directions. So it's an overcomplete basis set. For those who know what that is, it's like you'll literally have these things called mini-columns in the neocortex. You might have several hundred mini-columns in one of these columns, and the mini-columns represent dimensions of movement. And so there's this is overcomplete basis that defines the space of places you can move to.
2: It's really interesting that you really talk about in terms of movement because you probably may have read this. Oliver Sacks often felt like for him to think he needed to do physical movement. I think for him it was swimming. For me, it's running.
1: I wasn't aware of that. I wish I knew that. All thinking is a form of movement. And so sometimes it's physical, but sometimes it isn't. But you're doing the same thing. You're essentially saying, I'm going to take some action, which moves you to a new direction, a new point in a reference frame, and you recall the data that's stored there. So it's like if I walk through my house, as I move, as I enter new locations, I then recall, what should I see here? I don't imagine all at once. It's when I get to that location, I recall what should be that location. That is true when I move my finger over a coffee cup. It's also true like mathematics in language and politics, where I can show that when you're solving problems in mathematics or you're solving problems in politics, what you're literally doing is moving through a space of referencing of politics or referencing of mathematics.
0: It's so interesting because it sort of makes me think about memory too, right? And the old memory trick, you know, for how it like you go to that specific memory in your library, right?
1: Yes, yes. You're using a reference frame. It's like you're saying, okay, I'm going to put these I'm going to come up with this memory trick and remember a series of things. I'm going to put them in different places in my house. And then to recall them, I literally walk through the house mentally. And that tells you that you're using the reference frame for the house to store these objects that you want to remember. Memory is completely tied up in these reference frames. You can't separate it.
2: And those are sort of high-level specs for what it should do. I was actually very curious to understand architecturally what
1: they would look like. So then what does the computer look like, right? I mean, what is... One of the things which we haven't talked about is that everything in the brain is sparse. By sparse, I mean, like if you look at the cells that are active at any point in time, it's very small, maybe like 2%. And if you look at the number of connections between two neurons, it's not a fully connected network. It's a very sparsely connected network. So maybe there's only a 1% chance that two neurons that are near each other connect to each other. So there's these sparse connections and these sparse activities. And these are really important. So when we build machines in the future, we're going to rely on sparsity. So what we've been doing recently is we've been taking some of the principles from our theory and we're applying them to existing deep learning networks or recurrent neural networks or transformers. And we are sparsifying these networks. So they work on sparse principles. Now, here's the trick. If you wanted to design a piece of silicon for this, you wouldn't design it the way we do computers today. In fact, even today's AI works mostly on these things called graphic processes, the DPUs. But they're not good at sparsity. But it turns out there's another existing technology that is good at sparsity, still programmable data array, And so we've been working with FPGAs, and they're not good at dense networks, but they're good at sparse networks. And so we're showing these incredibly fast speed ups running existing networks on FPGAs using sparse networks. They become much more reliable. They become much more resistant to attack, meaning false attack, and they run much, much faster. We were able to speed them up by a factor of 50. You can imagine a silicon chip that's got the equivalent of a cortical column on. It's a sparse processor implementing these reference frames, has a sensory input and motor input and motor output, and that becomes your basic unit of computation in an intelligent system, and you can take 10 of those, 100 of those, 1,000 of those, a million of, of those and put them together and make small or large intelligent systems. Just like our neocortex, which contains about 150,000 cortical column, is pretty much the same architecture as a mouse or a rat's neocortex, which is just smaller. It just has fewer columns. And so it's a really interesting way of scaling. You just basically put more of these things together. And so sparsity makes sense. Computers use dense representation. So if I wanted to represent something in the computer, I might say, here's 64 bits. And you have 64 bits to represent something. And each one of those bits, you're going to specify it's a one or a zero. Now, the problem with the computer representation, a dense representation, it's very brittle. So if I change one of those bits, the whole thing changes completely. Like, if I change one bit in a 64 bit number in a computer, it means something completely different and the whole computer fails. (laughs) And so that's one of the problems with them. It's not robust. Dense representations are not robust. Sparse representations are inherently extremely robust. So let's say I have 10,000 neurons and I'm going to say, you know, 2% are active. So there's 200 neurons that are active. Now, it turns out I can say, well, that's a unique representation. In fact, the number of ways you can pick 200 out of 10,000 is larger than the number of atoms in the universe. So there's an unlimited representational capacity here. But if I knock out you know, 10% or 20%, or I change 20% of the neurons, I say, OK, 40 of them are going to be different, it's still going to be not close to any other pattern. That is, I can still be certain the original pattern was the one I wanted. So I can say I can have this huge robustness because I can change things, I can add noise, I can try to fool the system. I can have neurons that are dying. It doesn't matter. The system keeps working. It's not going to say this number is something. It's not like in a computer, you change one bit and it's different. Here, you can change 40 bits. It doesn't matter. It's not going to be confused at all. That's one benefit of sparsity. Another is you can represent multiple things at the same time. So imagine I said, okay, here's 10 things I want you to represent. Each one is going to be represented by 200 neurons that are active out of 10,000. Well, I can literally activate 10 items times 200 each, so about 2000 neurons can become active. Although I can't tell you what the original 10 were, I can still process it, meaning I can work on millions of representations at once. So the brain can process multiple things at the same time and not get confused. And that is only possible because of sparsity. Beautiful. And
2: presumably this ties directly into compressed sensing too, right? I think the concept there too is that sparsity actually is easier to train from an information theory point of view. What's interesting to me about the brain too is that you could have imagined that the brain could have had like a just nearest neighbor topology for all neurons, like just a chunk of material. But the fact that you can have these long connections is actually the interesting part, right? So the fact that it's not completely connected, that would be odd, right? To have everything connected, just even physically in a three-dimensional brain to have an infinite dimensional topology. Because what you've described sounds like it's a neural network of sorts that's sparse, done in intelligence, sparse, not random, like dropout, right? It's not random at all.
1: Real neurons, biological neurons, are very different than the neurons that are used in artificial intelligence. Real neurons have thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of synapses, connections, and they are on these dendritic branches. They're not at the cell body. They're not all being added together. They're on these different big branch-like extensions from the cell and the neurons are spread all over these branches. And so what happens is we know now is that each branch is its own little computer, its own little computational element. And so when we learn, when you and I learn in our brain, when we learn something new, we form synapses on only one of these little segments. We don't form all over the whole neuron. We form on one little segment. And that means I can train on that segment, but not affecting anybody else. All the other neurons, uh, synapses are not going to be effective. So I can literally take a neuron says it knows 10 things, I can say, okay, I want you to know, here's 100 new things. And it's not going to forget the original 10.
2: And given that complexity, I mean, maybe I'm jumping too far ahead, but like, when will we build these machines out of biological neurons instead?
1: You know, we're talking about a technological revolution that's going to occur over the course of the next several decades. You know, and I believe that truly intelligent machines are going to dominate the technology landscape in the end part of this century, as computers did in the last part of the last century. And so there's gonna be a long history of like figuring out what the right way to build these things, what the hybrid models, can we use FPGAs today? Do we have to use something new? Can we add some new basic instructions to CPUs or GPUs to get them to work correctly or better? And when would it make sense to do full implementations of this? So obviously we have a long way to go. We have to convince people that the ideas we have about AI are correct and that they prove to be useful. And then how do we get hardware people, which take a long time to build hardware? How do we get them to implement those things? So it's a big
2: challenge. And that's what's really interesting about this is the arc of possibilities, even just over the next two decades or even one decade.
1: Yeah. I think you know what's interesting, if you go back and look at the history of computers, like Turing and Van Neumann understood the principles of computing at the end of the nineteen thirties and early nineteen forties. And yet it took a long time to get, you know, computers to be powerful because look, they had to invent the transistor. They had to invent the you know, I think we're at the point where Van Norman and Turing were. Where we're starting to say these are the principles of intelligence, we're really cracking this thing. We got it figured out, but how long will it will take us to implement this stuff? Today we have all these amazing technologies to start with, so you know things are going to happen much more rapidly now than they did going from the 1950s to the 1990s. That took 50 years to to make really fast computers. You know we're going to do this, as you say, maybe you know a decade or two. So I'm
2: curious also to poke, though, at your central thesis, which is that, you know, like people first to build aircraft look to birds and like, you know, Da Vinci or even people much more recently. But planes can go supersonic speeds, birds can't. And planes don't fly the way birds do. In what sense do you think this should be, like human
1: intelligence should be the means or the inspiration? Yeah. So a lot of people are familiar with that analogy. And I think it's flatly wrong. The Wright brothers studied birds. And first, they studied their wing shapes. They actually had birds in wind tunnels. And they studied them to figure out two things. What is the correct aerodynamic shape for the wing and also how birds did control. That was the big problem. They're trying to figure out how to do control. And so they realized that the birds, they flexed their wings to do control. And that's how the first ripoded planes work. Now, obviously, you don't need to implement it the same way that birds do. And so they realized right away that propulsion could be done with a propeller. We don't need to do that. We don't do the floppy. But you know, planes were designed on the principles of birth. So my argument is the following. We come up with these principles by which the intelligence works, right? You can't get away from those principles, but you can implement them any way you want. I'm not saying you have to implement them the way neurons implement them. There may be other better ways to implement them. Certainly, we can improve upon nature's designs. We can build them out of a different substrate. We can use silicon. Maybe we'll use something else. I don't know. But the principles are there and planes do fly on the principles of birds. They have the wing shape those comes in birds and the way they navigate, they turn and control it was based on birds, but we do it differently. Now.
0: So if we're starting to get a sense of these principles and our understanding of them is new, does it change what you think the future applications could be? Does it give us new ideas?
1: Well, it's very, very difficult to know future applications. I would say it's nearly impossible. We tend to think of like, oh, we're going to apply these machines to do things we are trying to do today. But the really useful applications, the ones that have just changed the world are typical things that no one's doing today and no one's even thinking about. You know, that was the same with computers. Like right? computers are thought of like, oh, we're going to replace these human computers who are doing these calculations on these mathematical tables. <laughs> no one thought about GPS or, you know, the internet or digital music. No one can imagine that stuff. We are similarly blind to the future applications. But Hannah, it did change my way about something else, which how I think about humanity.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because the third part of the book is sort of about how this changes our sense of self. And so how do we get, is that because of how we fundamentally, you know, our sort of essential consciousness or what is the connection to self? Well, it's more like,
1: just think broadly about who are we, what are we? You know, obviously we're an animal species. We evolved on this earth. We all know this. I started realizing a couple of things about our intelligence. One is we're also attached to these older brain structures that really have been there for eons, billions of years, in some sense. And so we have these old animal instincts that underlie us all. We have to eat, we have sex, we cover things, we cheat on people. These are all biologically, evolutionally advantageous things for genes. Genes are trying to replicate, and we have all these built-in behaviors. They're not always pretty, but we have them. And yet we're pairing it with this incredible system, this organ, the neocortex, which learned this incredible model of the universe. We now know about the age of the universe and how big it is and we're learning all the scientific principles of how it operates, and yet we're still tied to this old brain. And this is the existential risk of human intelligence. That is, we are creating these extremely powerful technologies, but we're still in this biologically old brain that, you know, this needs to eat too much and have too much sex and steal things <laughs> and, and cheat. And so it is a recipe for disaster. But that's where we
2: are now, is the neocortex is just plopped on top of the reptilian brain, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: And the neocortex is not in control. Interesting, the neocortex cannot make any muscles move on its own. It's the rider and the
2: elephant, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. It's just saying, please do this, please do this for me. But what makes humans unique is our intelligence and our knowledge. Those are the two things. Other than that, we're not very special. You know, We're not fast. We're not strong. We don't swim particularly well. We don't fly. You know, We have a really great brain. We're really intelligent animals. We have a huge amount of knowledge. And that's what makes us unique. And so if we think about what should our future be, what do we want to preserve? What are we trying to accomplish by existing? Is it to propagate genes or is it to propagate knowledge? And then you could start asking questions about, well, how do we do that? How would we think about our future in a way that preserves knowledge as opposed to our genetic background? I mean, so I'm
2: curious what you think of an alternative approach, which is that this AI becomes the neo-neocortex that sits on top and that it's as much in control as our neocortex is in control and it's the reptilian brain. And so it can think even more amazing things. And maybe to some very poor BCI version, my smartphone is that right now. And I've got access to the world's information and science and math and whatever, but I'm still driven by cat videos. Yeah, that's a great (laughs) question. That's a great (laughs) question. But yet it feels like evolution, right? I mean, like reptiles have a subset of what we have and we've just added on top of it. I
1: think we're already in trouble as it is. Now that we've created technologies that can really just alter and destroy the earth, we are in trouble. Because all it takes is one reptile brain to say, I'm tired of this.
0: But what I'm wondering, Jeff, as you say this, is what is the bright side, right? What is the bright side of understanding of this different fundamental understanding and what it means we can build?
1: Well, it's certainly a brighter side than what we have today. Today's view of the world is we exist as biological entities to propagate genes. This is Richard Dawkins' argument about the selfish gene. And so we are blindly going along, thinking we're doing all this wonderful stuff, but we're really here. Everything we do is basically to help genes propagate. We have an alternate to decide a future where we say, well, what do we want a future to be about? And maybe it's about increasing our knowledge about the universe and making sure it's preserved and propagated.
0: So is that what you're describing, kind of like the ability that we one day build sort of the genetic equivalent of preserving knowledge, the DNA for knowledge?
1: I'm not prescribing that we do anything. I'm just saying, I don't think people are thinking long-term. Like, what is the ultimate goal of doing? What are we trying to accomplish? What we might want to accomplish? I don't think the conversation has included the right set of ingredients yet. It is possible that, you know, it's possible that in some future time, humans as a biological species don't exist anymore. But it's possible we could create machines or other entities that replicate and carry knowledge to other parts of the universe, especially if we acknowledge that we may not be here very long. You know, it is possible that we may not live for another thousand years. If we're lucky, we'll be a lot longer than that. But we should be thinking about these things now.
2: Well, what's intriguing to me especially is a lot of AI, as fast as it's moving, is just trying to sort of move to the very next thing versus having an end goal in mind and trying to reach that end goal. I think it almost feels like a sphere that's expanding rather than trying to go towards a specific end point.
1: Yeah, well, it's like who does next on the best benchmark. Well, I think what the field of AI has lacked in understanding what intelligence is. There is no understanding what intelligence is in the field of AI. And what I'm trying to do is be very precise about what that is. What do we learn how brains do this? What makes the brain intelligent? What does it mean to know something in detail? How do the actual neurons do this? We have a very good understanding of this now. And then they say, OK, well, that's intelligence. And we want to build intelligent machines. It's not about just incrementing the next benchmark in AI, machine learning techniques. It's like, okay, what is the infrastructure we have to build? What's the whole framework we have to build to build an intelligent machine? The principles of intelligence are going to be there. Those aren't going to change. Do you think if
2: there was an alien life that came, their intelligence would still fit those rules?
1: Yeah, totally. Because now realize it really couldn't be any other way. Intelligence is literally the ability to learn a model of the world. That's what it is.
0: So you think it's a universal or beyond universal model? It's
1: not an ability to solve a problem or do a task, it's an ability to understand. The world, and that means you have a model of the world, and that's what all intelligent animals have to have. They have to have. Even the rat has a model of its world, so it knows how to get through the food and how to get back home, and where to avoid the, the electric shocks in the cage and things like yeah. that. Well, you're constantly making predictions, right? Yeah, and you're making them from the model. The model tells you this. An alien intelligence, if some other species out somewhere in the universe, and came to visit us, they would have a model of the world in their head. They would know what the laws of physics are. They would know what the universe is like. They would know all the same things we know. They may not know about our planet, but they certainly know about planets and solar systems. And and so they have to recreate that structure in their whatever the head equivalent is. To be intelligent, you have to have a recreation of that knowledge in your head, a model of the world in your body or in your instantiation of some sort. I mean, they might be ephemeral. They may not have any, obviously, physical manifestations, but they'll have a model of the world. And those principles are going to apply.
2: Maybe they're going to be made out of silicon or germanium. And if carbon maybe more like carbon-based transistors, you know,
0: yeah.
1: something... Who knows? I don't know. I mean, I can't anticipate <laughs> that. But the principle of intelligence are there. They're not going to
0: change. It's so cool to think about, you know, from the small to the large here, from the tiniest thing of sort of how we pick up and look at a water glass around us to all the way of, you know, how will we preserve the legacy of our entire <laughs> species? <laughs>
1: Let's try to figure that into a 30-minute podcast.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.